0: Was some, uh, those were some pretty cool little shooty gun movements you were doing while you were dancing to RZA. Uh, oh yeah, we're live. <laughs> Welcome to this, the Red Bulls of Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to the top performers in the worlds of adventure and sports and culture and music. We're trying to understand the hurdles that they overcame to get where they are and the secrets to their success. Uh, today's guest is a man who, who risks a lot to get the ultimate rush, surfing big waves. And by big, I mean five-story building, six-story, seven-story building tall waves. So just wrap your head around that. He surfs them around the world, but his home is Maui. His name is Ian Walsh. And uh, he was born on the mainland, but he grew up on Maui's famed North Shore, a uh, place where waves the size of large buildings are a regular occurrence in the wintertime when the winter swell hits. Uh, and no place is more legendary on the North Shore than Jaws. Jaws is really sacred ground to the tight-knit community of big wave surfers around the world. It's the landing point of waves that are generated all the way in the North Pacific uh, from storms off of Japan or in the Aleutian Islands. Those waves make them, make their way all the way across and, and land at Jaws and, and throw up wave faces of, of 50, 60, 70 feet. Um, that also f- somehow form perfect barrels. Needless to say, though, you need insane amounts of experience and uh, ballsiness as well. Uh, our guest today is in possession of both. And of course, whenever you're talking about big waves like that, you got to talk about big wipeouts and he, Ian Walsh is an absolutely chilling story about his worst wipeout there but also about the resolve that came out of that wipeout for him to change the way he and others train and better prepare themselves for big waves some of this is documented in his new film distance between dreams which is on red bull tv on december 19th it also recounts a historic big wave season at jaws last winter Uh, definitely something to check out but in the meantime, why don't you check out this podcast with Ian Walsh. Let's start the show. One,
1: two, three, you were born in Maui. Right? I was born in Rhode Island. You in bo- New- I was born in Newport, Rhode Island on the East Coast. That's where my dad's whole family's from. And he was living on Maui where he met my mom and then they got pregnant with me and his father passed away and he had eight sisters so he went home to help with his family and kind of get them all dialed for a little bit and then they ended up having me there and he just kind of worked around there for a little bit and helped his family and then they just one cold day they just packed it up and moved back to Maui and that's where they settled down and then we that's what our family's move was and what what was he doing in, in Maui? Like, what kind of job? I think, like, if I have this correctly, which I think I do, he kind of yeah. just sent it and just went straight over there, and they didn't nice. really have everything planned. Like, I had my three brothers and I and them all living in, like, a small one room at his brother's place until they kind of got the ball rolling. My mom was a school teacher, so she was trying to transfer over there, but that took a minute for everything to set in. And he was just kind of doing odds and ends. I think he drove a truck for FedEx for a little bit. And then he locked into driving tractors for the sugar cane company. Wow. And then he's still doing that today.
0: So that kind of... I feel like Hawaii is kind of like that. Like everyone's kind of just doing jobs to do jobs. It's not necessarily like this kind of corporate vibe that you get in Chicago, obviously. Or or Los Angeles, where
1: we are right now. Like you have this sense of like urgency to work in these places. And I think Hawaii is more about like, you kind of do enough to live comfortably. And it's more about the lifestyle of where you are rather than what it is you're doing for work. But like bringing like when I look back on what they did now, when you're a kid, I was so young, I was like, tied up to a leash in an airport to my brother to make sure we didn't separate. (laughs) So I don't really I wasn't really processing what was happening. But when I look back on it now, for them to just like pick up and move with four young boys, and just like roll the dice, like, "Okay, hey, we need to just make it happen when we get there, find a house, find jobs, and just make a life." That's pretty, pretty ballsy for any family to do anywhere in
0: the world. Yeah, it's, it appears it runs in the family—the ballsiness. Right? <laughs> Is there? Uh, do you? Do you? I mean, do you remember when you arrived in Hawaii? Um, How old were you? I, can't, I don't know what age I was exactly. I can like vaguely
1: remember, but not not no, too much. Yeah. But kind what of, was
0: the lifestyle like? You just described it as more kind of yeah. the, the emphasis l- is on living. The,
1: the life. lifestyle was more like what my earliest memories are is kind of a lot of our lives orientated around the beach. Like no matter where you live on the island, what direction you go, eventually you end up at a beach. And that seemed like what a lot of the kids would do on the island, like at the end of the work week for the parents and the end of the school week for the kids, everyone goes to the beach and that's kind of like their, that's their playground. Right. So I remember that kind of having a strong sense in our lives from a pretty young age, but both my parents had to work full time to support all four boys And we lived kind of halfway up the mountain when I was really young, so I only got to go to the beach on the weekends when they didn't have work. And then the house they were renting sold underneath them, and they needed to make a move pretty quickly. And the one place that they could move all four boys and still deal with their jobs and everything that was going on was pretty close to the beach. So rather than only being able to go on the weekends, I would take the bus home from school, and I was like a one- or a two-minute little hitchhike or like a 10 to 15 minute walk down to the where the surf was and you that hitchhike yeah uh, well there was a store right in front of our house and a lot of the guys that surfed at the way I grew up surfing hoquipa would go to that store to get snacks or water or whatever yeah and I would just sit by a fire hydrant across the street when they finished whatever they were buying and going back to the beach I would just hop in the back of the truck yeah perfect and that was so I kind of I'd see that I'd recognize the trucks of the older surfer guys. Like, oh, he's definitely going to go back to the beach, so I can maybe jump in
0: the back of his truck. How welcome were you into that whole community, considering you know the reputation, definitely in the North Shore of of Oahu, but probably also Maui as well. You're what they call, I suppose, a halley. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and that's, that's <laughs> which is
0: something you embrace.
1: It, yeah, well.
0: I grew up is. there,
1: and it is it, it is what it is. You know, I'm not going to pretend I'm something I'm not, and I never have my entire life. And I think that's how you really do get embraced when you're not like you're just being yourself, like you're not trying to be something you're not. And in the beginning, yeah, it was a little rough. Like blonde hair, blue eyes. You are you're kind of the minority there in a sense. Like that, there is a there is a vibe and a weird a bit of
0: resentment or I don't know it what it is
1: like just,
0: just just this is our turf kind of a deal yeah, yeah.
1: and rightfully so it and it, it just i don't know it just at the beginning i did have that sense and any of the kids i had little quarrels with or whatever at, at a young age ironically those guys became some of my best friends for the like to this day from like elementary school And they all had younger brothers and big families, so just and their younger brothers became friends with my younger brothers, and it just kind of, yeah. And then surfing, surfing helped with a lot of that. Like you are you, you make friends through the sports you're doing, and that just kind of. Is there? I know
0: there's like a a pecking order when it comes to lineups and in these spots, especially when it breaks big. You know. does that happen when you're, I don't know, like eight or nine too? Or is yeah,
1: it, is so surfing's a really hard sport to like get good at because you're dealing with a, a moving playground. So no two waves are the same. You are dealing with other surfers. You're dealing with better surfers. There's localism. There is a, a totem pole, if you will, like of, you know, the top guys getting certain waves and people that grew up there and spend the most time there. So it is a challenge and it takes time to kind of break into that. And Hawaii is not the easiest place in the world to kind of roll right into a lineup and catch waves at at ease. So it takes, I don't know. It just takes time of, you just keep coming back and wanting to surf and people right. kind of pick up on that. You're not like, obviously the number one thing is having good etiquette in the water and respect for the other people there or the respect for the people that are there all the time, you know, and paying attention to who's who and where they are in the lineup and try not to make any mistakes around that, yeah. kind of treading lightly, especially yeah. when you're real young. And then just staying in the water. Like people start to see you more and more and more and more and see your drive or passion to surf, and that's kind of that's contagious for them. You know, it's hard to like look beyond that. Even if you've, you know, you feel that sense of a, a weird vibe out in certain lineups, sure. people, no matter what's
0: happening, they are attracted to that. Well, and you're, it's interesting also, cause you're the eldest of four brothers, right? So. Yeah. So
1: it was pretty important for me to set that tone with my brothers. Like, okay. Like we all want to surf every day and this is what we want to do. Like I don't think I was consciously thinking about that when I was that age but as I look back on it today it, there was definitely some stance there where I was like okay if if this is the the best route for us to kind of get waves and you know not have a bunch of drama in the water it's like be respectful have good etiquette wait your turn and then if I if I'm doing all of this and my brothers are too then we'll be Will be fine.
0: Did it also help to have brothers in case it did go down?
1: Definitely. Like, <laughs> but you as the oldest, yeah. like you feel like a a sense of responsibility too, and you're kind of setting a precedent for like how you want your brothers to to be as as a, as people to as behave as in the water, to behave exactly. on, on land. land. Yeah, right. And you're setting you're an example at a really young age, which is hard to like really grasp when you are that young but looking back now i definitely feel like that was and that was instilled in me in
0: a really young age talk about your relationship to the water there it's it's a really i I mean i've been out in hawaii a couple of times and you know probably just body surf but one thing that struck me is the big difference to maybe southern california it's just how like alive that ocean is you know it you really feel like you're in the middle of the ocean you're on this tiny island just getting buffeted you know the the ocean feels a lot more a lot heavier a lot more I don't know if angry is the word there's a lot of the
1: ocean has a lot of raw energy a lot
0: exactly
1: like you're getting the bulk of the swells that we're getting in winter have a ton of power a ton of speed and they're just a lot more powerful than some of the other places in the world, and you feel that when you're in the water. It's just
0: so it's instant respect. In other yeah, words, yeah. Well, like you know.
1: haven't you have a lot of respect for the surfers in the lineup, and then you have a really high level of respect for the waves and what it is you're trying to surf in. Absolutely, with whether it's the reef, the wave height, everything around you, the current, anything that can go wrong. Like having a good understanding of that. And Hawaii does have—it just feels really, really powerful. The ocean is is alive there, especially when it gets a massive swell at Jaws or Waimea or Pipeline or some of these other marquee waves. Yeah. When you're in the lineup, you really feel like all of the energy in the Pacific Ocean is being
0: triangulated right to that area. And does it help to have just been out so often to have gotten used to that, or do you never really fully get used to that energy?
1: I mean, you get—you never really get used to, like, waves of massive size, but you do get used to, like, the texture of the water, the feel, the way the wind is creating bumps, where the current's going, being able to analyze a lineup in less than 10 seconds just by a first glance to see where the current's going, where the best waves are breaking, how big it is, how much energy is in the ocean, how much salts in the air because there's no wind. Like seeing all of that, that does develop over time. And like anything you do, like sitting here doing a podcast, if you do this every day, the repetition makes it more and more comfortable as you do it. And the more time you spend in the water, you start to really be able to feel and notice these adjustments a lot faster and you find a lot more comfort in it. But at the end of the day, when like a 50- or a 60-foot wave starts standing up in front of you, you you really, that comfort is hard to grasp because you don't get to do that as often. You might be able to surf in that ocean a ton and feel the wind, feel the bump, feel the current in all different sizes, but at 50 or 60 feet, you only get a few marquee days every season, if that.
0: You started surfing probably around six or seven. I feel, but when when did the big waves start calling you? When was that? I think something. Yeah, that you I started
1: to surfing. Hear? My dad surfed, so he was, definitely had me playing in the ocean before I can even remember. And then I got really into surfing, probably in the like the late elementary school phase. And then big waves started. Coming into my life through a guy named Matt Kinoshita, who was shaping my boards there. And he was, he still is a phenomenal surfer. And he surfed all the outer reefs on Maui, paddling in. And that was kind of in the same transition that this tow and stuff was happening at Jaws and starting to happen on Oahu. So, so I was, what
0: what years are we talking about here?
1: I'm talking like probably mid-90s, okay, like maybe just prior to mid-90s.
0: And by towing, you mean uh, jet skis yeah, j- uh, with ropes attached like you would have on a wakeboard or something pulling uh, yep. surfers into the wave. Yeah, and
1: it, mo- it m- went from being like a Zodiac with a rope towing a guy into some outer reefs to a smaller size jet ski than what we use today yep. and a rope. and start- And I was starting to kind of, I saw that from a pretty young age. And Maui became kind of like a hub for that to happen at Jaws and a few of the other waves on the outer reefs there. But there was also this core group of surfers that were surfing the outer reefs on Maui when I was really young, and a lot of them still do. And I was just kind of drawn to that through this guy, Matt Kaneshita, that was almost like a mentor and someone that was really Kind of helping me down the right path at a young age. He was shaping my boards, helping me f- get into some contests if I couldn't afford to do the events. and and then he also surfed big waves. So I just kind of it just naturally evolved being a product of my environment. Like the waves get really big on Maui and provide this canvas. So at a really young age, I started to like tiptoe out there. And watch from the side and try to get a wave or two on the side
0: and do you remember the, do you remember the first time do you remember how long you waited like uh you know before paddling in before trusting yourself to paddle in
1: yeah i remember like even i mean not like jaws days but i've had other days at like a few other waves on maui where i was you know 12 or 13 years old and you're like tiptoeing out there and i mean this feels like the biggest day ever to you And you're watching these older surfer guys catch phenomenal waves and you're just trying to wrap your head around what they're doing and the comfort and the ease that they're doing it with and just kind of inching your way into the lineup and just being always that ever-growing scare that the second or third wave is going to be way bigger and swing wide and catch you inside and break on you. And that just, I think... That's kind of where I started to feel that feeling of like, okay, this is scary, but I like this right. a lot. Like, right. I like it. Like, I want to keep doing this. And then, pro- in like the middle of high school I, and towards the end of high school, is when everything really ramped up. Like, 16, 17, I started going. I went out to Jaws one day and towed into a wave with my neighbor, Luke Hargraves. And that was. pretty much it that's when like the talons locked into my back (laughs) and it was like okay that was a lot faster than I'd ever gone before that was a bigger wave than I've ever gone before and I feel like I could have rode that way better and been way deeper and I kind of just want a bigger one than that and that was like when it really set in and as I was balancing that and paddle surfing some of the outer reefs on Maui it all just kind of started to come together right but, it, but initially it did come, like, I don't want people to be confused with it starting towing in. It all begins for most surfers paddling in. Right. And there are a lot of outer reefs, fortunately for me, where I grew up, that provided that canvas to go out and start to... To dabble,
0: yeah, great, great way of putting it. Canvas like you're a painter, right? Like yeah, just and it gives you—it's
1: giving you an opportunity here. Like, and a lot of places in the world don't have an opportunity of waves that size. So, like, I just—I never really looked back on it, like why I did that or how I got into it. It was just like where I lived.
0: Did you already develop strategies at that point for controlling the jitters in you or controlling the fear? Of- no,
1: I hadn't. It, everything was just like progressive learning as you went and then not and being so young that you don't I don't I didn't even know how to process that stuff I'm like yeah I'm scared but this is just how it goes I guess (laughs) everyone else is scared so you know I want to surf and I want to push myself but I always had like this weird calming sense of being able to control that and not have like the shaky uncontrollable hand when you're really scared like even the first few times I went out there, yeah, I'm really scared, but I had a a way of like controlling that, understanding it, and then taking off on a wave and everything just seems to drift away and y- your body works the way you want it to.
0: And when you take off down a wave, right, you're you're at the lip, you're at the precipice, Um, you pop up smooth, and then you start going down. It looks smooth on video footage. Is it though?
1: Yeah, it is smooth, but that's... That's an interesting point of the wave. The only time, like on a a massive wave here, I'm talking, like when the entire horizon stands up 50 or 60 feet and it turns into this deep blue building-looking thing coming marching at you, your instinct is to tell you, like, paddle towards it and get far enough out to where it won't break on you. Get away from this wave as fast as you can. And when you're surfing those waves, you have to stay far enough in to where it looks like it might break on you to even give yourself a glimmer of a chance of trying to catch it. So that's when all the thinking is happening at all when you're on the wave. As soon as you see it is when everything's processing. You're reading what the wave's doing, what the wind's doing. You're positioning in the lineup how far out you need to move to be able to catch it without it breaking on your back, how far in you need to move if you feel like you're too far out. And that's when everything's kind of processing. And then as soon as you start committing and paddling and you feel the momentum shift and you're locked into the wave and you're about to stand up, then all the thought drifts away. And that's, that is the moment that, I feel like I'm constantly chasing and why I surf these big waves. It's because as soon as you stand up, that's the only time in my entire life that everything and you're awake, but everything drifts away. Like all you're so intently focused on what's three feet in front of you and processing everything as a feeling rather than a thought and adjusting to what's happening. It takes away any thought you have about laundry, groceries, bills, mortgage, right. anything. So it's, that, it's
0: flow. It's flow state. probably. But right?
1: it, And it's really quick to get into that. It, it requires so much of your attention that nothing else is in your brain at all. And I think that that's what's so unique about big waves in particular is it's really, as soon as you start standing up and you're you feel the connection. You're and and in. You're into the wave. There's no turning back. You're either going over the falls or you ride this wave to the best of your ability, and it is a wave of magnitude. Then that all of that stuff drifts away. And it's, that's probably, I think that's the reason I enjoy surfing these waves so It'd be just
0: great to have that in regular life, right? Yeah. And outside of the water, right? That ability to just switch and immediately focus and have it all drift
1: away. Yeah. And not be worried about your phone, not be worried, you know, about anything. And you can get that in small waves as well. I get that a lot if the waves are really good or if the waves are really fun, head high, and it's rippable. I still find that, but in big waves it's just a really heightened version of that for me and that's like it's different like you have all these thoughts and this processing going on at the front of your mind when the wave stands up and then when you actually take off on the wave you're almost like all, there's no more thinking it's all just a feeling and adjusting to what's happening and that's pretty rare and i maybe in other other sports people feel that when they get sure really into the moment but That's the only time in my life. Like, I have a lot of sporadic thoughts and a million different balls in the air at all times. And that's the only time where, like, in that window of seconds that everything, I'm only in that one moment and I'm not thinking about anything else.
0: Let's talk about the risk of it as well, because you can't talk about big waves without talking about Mm -hmm. just incredibly epic, brutal wipeouts and hold downs for minutes on end in a churning sea washing machine like you never imagined in life. How, uh when was your, when was do you think back on your first experience of that? Yeah, I've had a few bad
1: ones. I've had two in particular that were really like sometimes night altering sleep Sleep altering, like, falls. like you
0: might wake up because you're thinking about it, kind of a or thing, or
1: like haven't just for a, a long time after the fall, you're like thinking about it before you fall asleep. Just I've had two of
0: those, and what what happened in those?
1: The first one is actually at Jaws when I was 20 years old, and it was the biggest day I'd surfed at up till that point by far and away. This is January 10th, 2004, and
0: I just. 20 feet, 25 feet.
1: I think there. this day was maybe one of the biggest days that I can remember in my lifetime at Jaws. So probably
0: in the, like the 60 to 70 foot range consistently. So that's six story buildings, seven story buildings. Yeah. But uh, a, a wave version of that. A wave version
1: of that moving really quickly with a lot of power. Wow. Okay. And and I, just, I ha- was having a really good day and starting to feel it out. And this was the biggest day I'd ever surfed up until that point and I was starting to feel the difference in speed. Like the difference between a 40-foot tall wave and a 60-foot tall wave is on the 40-foot tall wave, you can make whatever equipment you have pretty much work. If you're a relatively good surfer, you can make it work. And to anyone watching, like they might not pick up on the minute details that you're feeling under your feet. But a 60-foot-plus wave, you can't do that. That's, the speed is so much more drastic. Everything is happening so much faster that if your equipment's not up to par, then it will not... Sustain the, it won't the sustain, stress, right? Yeah, it won't, just won't work. You can't make it work. You can't pretend to put that in the back of your mind and just surf. And that's what I started to learn that day. I really noticed, like, wow, these waves are moving so much faster than anything I've ever surfed in my entire life. And that it was also a really monumental day and i think just for jaws itself because of how consistently the big waves were coming so there was a lot of repetition and a lot of waves so big, everyone's like, I don't even want want to ride that one. Like, if you want it, you have it. I'll right,
0: which is so rare, super you Yeah, to say. <laughs> like, yeah. In, in the In the sport of surfing, there's very few times when surfers, just go ahead. Yeah, you want this word? one? You're, yeah. you're up if you want it. Yeah, that's really <laughs> exactly. rare. Yeah, this isn't golf.
1: And I had a few good waves that were all leading to, like, you know, I'm learning as I'm going in this day. Like, I'm processing, like, how how these waves feel under my feet and I'm adjusting each wave by wave and four or five waves go by and I'm starting to build more and more confidence. And one wave came that I kind of, I caught an edge. And what I mean by that is the board rolled over and I slowed down almost to a stop at the very top of it, right after I had let go of the rope to get into it. And as I hit that, I started to like, almost hop, try to hop into the wave to regain my momentum. And that hung me at the top of about a 50 to 60 foot wave, like right at the top as it's getting beyond vertical. And in my head, I was like, oh, that slowed me down so much that if I do get into this wave, I'm going to be behind it and be able to go right into the barrel rather than being in front of it, which you are a lot of the time. And I like, fought my way back in hopping into this wave and then got the momentum back into it. And as I set my line and pulled up into the pocket, which I thought was going to be a really big barrel, the whole wave adjusted and started to clamp. And I could see that happening as I got like halfway up the wave and I tried to adjust my angle to straighten out and try to outrun it landing on me. And it literally just met me halfway, like all the force of the wave landed right on my chest and knocked the wind out of me and blew both life jackets. I had it broke both zippers open and just flew them off my chest. And I caught one of them in my arm. And then that's when everything slowed down and I got picked up after having the wind knocked out of me. And it felt like a waterfall, like a huge waterfall like real slow going over the falls and I luckily got like a tiny little breath as my head popped out going over the wave and then I landed and it just went into like a really violent impact almost like your your heart rates as high as it would be in like a spin class like if you're in a spin class really getting after it on a bike your heart rate is like bouncing through your chin and it, you're in a car accident in the same time, like flying around the back of your feet or hitting the back of your head. You have no idea where the board is, so you're trying to block your head for any impact there. And deep in the back of my mind, I knew that if I kind of lost this little life jacket and I did black out because I had the wind knocked out of me, that I would have no nothing to surface me so the guys could find me and maybe do CPR after if I did go under
0: all these thoughts are going through your head
1: yeah because normally when you fall you ideally you get a nice big breath and you're like okay I'm comfortable I'm calm I'm relaxed like I just gotta ride this out and wait for my window of opportunity and punch it to the surface and when the wind like getting punched in the stomach as hard as you can right before you dive into a pool makes it a really uncomfortable swim so that's kind of what's happening and as i started to s- try to swim to the surface after being as calm as i could it st- it, t- it started taking me so many strokes big strokes to try to get up and it's still really violent underwater and i opened my eyes cuz i started to feel like i ha- i'm right the pressure on my ears is releasing i'm close to the surface and in my head i'm like i need to get up or i'm not going to beat the next wave and if the next wave comes over me, this is all resets and goes for another 20 or 30 seconds. And I don't think I have another 10 seconds in me to, to keep holding my breath at this point. And I'm fighting to get to the surface. And right before the surface, I can, you know, the pressure as a surfer, like your ears release and you're like, okay, hey, I'm right there. I, I'm going to exhale and I'll punch and get an inhale as soon as I come out, as soon as my nose even breaks the surface. And when I opened my eyes, what would normally be, you know, either a light-colored blue or, like, a really bright, vibrant white because of the whitewash, all I saw was, like, the darkest pitch black that you could imagine. And that, like, confused me. I was like, what? Like, how, how could I be this deep that it's black? Like, consciously thinking that, right? And I know the pressure on my ears. I'm at the top. And then everything started to shut down kind of in my body. Like my brain is still firing on all cylinders, but it's telling what I learned much, much later after doing free dive courses, your brain, everything turns off in your body to conserve oxygen for your brain because that's the most important asset to your body. So my fingertips started cramping every muscle in my body from the lack of oxygen. And then while my brain is still triggering cake, kick, 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 swim, kick, 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 swim. Nothing's working in that last second. And I'm like, why, like, why are my legs not swimming? And everything was basically cramping up and shutting down just prior to blacking out. And right as that was happening is when I surfaced. Like I just, and I, there's video of me popping up and waving off a jet ski because it was really close to the next wave, like maybe less than three seconds, I was surfaced. And then I just like roll my head back under and like a 50-foot wall of water hits me after I am I surfaced. So I came up, got one breath, and didn't even have it in me to try to dive down three feet. I just like, similar to like a duck would going in the water, just like put its head in and got hit by the next wave. And then I went through that all over again and then surfaced, got on a jet ski and was getting into the channel. Then all the blood rushed back into my body for, or the oxygen, whatever it was, to take away the cramping. Everything As everything came back, I was sitting on the back seat of the jet ski and that's when I finally went lights out for like a second and fell off the back of the ski, cut my head on the board behind. And that was like a really big wake up call for me being that young. Cause I'd never been through something like that in the ocean. You always have scares when you're a kid, like, "Whoa, that was close. Th- that was really bad fall. I hit the bottom really hard on my head. I need stitches or, and that was the first time I was like, okay, this needs it. Like, there's no more just like eating cereal and going surfing for fun. If you're going to surf these types of waves, like you need to, put some work into
0: making sure that never ever happens again did you have a uh thought were there thoughts in your mind to to take a break um that day or in surfing in general surfing in
1: general after something or big waves in general and I thought about that a lot much later and I never really had that it just kind of gave me this like I gotta be prepared yeah. It never gave me like, well, I don't want to do this. It was like, okay, I want to do this. What do I need to do so that doesn't happen again when it happens like that again? Because it's going to come. So that's when he started thinking about breath hold training, right? And That's kind of when I started thinking about just training in general. The breath hold stuff came a few years later, mm-hmm. Okay, but that's what eventually snowballed into
0: the program that I did with Red Bull here. So how different was what you ended up doing to what you were doing before in terms of your training? Was, I mean,
1: some of the basics were there. Like I had like I started like which was pretty I guess not too common back then but using foam rollers to roll out your body when it's super beat up and sore. And I'm starting to travel a little bit more then and doing that stuff. And then the gym work was pretty different, I guess, to what I'm doing now. It's just, you know, I was learning learning about working out and learning about, like, what what benefits surfing. I'm not working out to, like, be a guy in Gold's Gym in Venice Beach, you know. Right, I, right. I don't care about bench pressing a 1,000 pounds. Like, I, I want to know what what helps me surfing, not what, like, makes me look ripped and (laughs) huge like a muscle man you know right Right. so i was starting to learn that stuff and kind of try different things and be like okay yeah that that doesn't that didn't really benefit me so what else could i have in my two-hour window here i don't need to do that is there something else that i don't know about yet And starting to pick and
0: piece that together myself over were you were you i mean it sounds quite atypical of of a surfer right i mean you know i know there's the the old kind of stereotype of what a surfer is you know just kind of happy-go-lucky cruising all day you know have a couple beers at night and wake up the next morning eat a bowl of cereal and go yeah. on you know but uh you know was surfing changing did you notice that among your peers as well that people were starting to get quite serious about this
1: Uh, That came a few years later, for sure. But it did happen. You know, there was a a few guys making runs for world titles. And they had really implemented into refining their techniques, refining their fitness, nutrition. And it was heavily altering their consistency surfing. So you could really see that. And now that's like a norm. Like kids these days that want to make a run at a world title or... You know, surf these types of waves. They're putting in a lot of time right. in the water and a lot of time in the gym or on a bike or whatever it may be to prepare. So, what did you do specifically? I guess, well, then was a lot of a lot of gym stuff, and that parlayed into a program that I kind of do now, which is a ton of road cycling and a ton of time in the gym doing a lot of activation work what does that mean like an act so if i'm gonna surf a really big day like i wouldn't go in and do like a super intense workout to where my body's sore the next day i'm just making doing activations things that are making sure the muscles of are firing the way i want them to everything's in line the way i want them to and everything's working really quickly without having to think about it so just turning everything on And then when you hop up on a board, you feel like, okay, my reaction time is there, my timing's on, everything feels good. I don't have, like, a kinked up, like, rotation in my ribs compared to where my hips are that's slowing down a little minute second detail that you would need. And then the other side of it is putting in a lot of time. If it's not going to be a big swell, then I'm doing a lot of intense workouts like upper body endurance workouts, tons of lower body stuff coupled with – a lot of it is all mixed in with bike riding. So I can use biking as a way to flush out anything that's built up, lactic acid, and it's no impact on my body. Right. And then the third facet to all of it is the breath work. So doing free diving specifically and some modified free diving things – that cater towards the violent nature of being under a wave, and also taking some of those concepts and bridging them into the gym. So I'll do circuit training, like a really high-intensity circuit training session, and on some of the circuits I'm holding my breath for like 20 seconds, and then I have 10 seconds to breathe, and then I hold for 25 seconds while I'm doing this workout, and then I have five seconds to breathe, and then hold for 30 seconds, and then I have three seconds to breathe, hold for 35 seconds, and that's like simulating coming up and being like, I only have a second before the wave, and you start to really feel what your body, your heart rate's high, everything's there, and obviously it's in a controlled environment, making sure I'm not, if I do black out, I'm not going to hit my head on anything,
0: and how how incredible has the progress been in terms of your breath holding? Like how how much how much could you hold at the beginning? How much can you do now? That's a
1: great question. So the reason I I had never shared this with anyone prior to coming to Red Bull, and they have um Andy Walsh was building this program to help their athletes, Doctor Andy Walsh, and he he came to came to me and was like hey, is there anything we could help with that you you know you have a lot of access to things right now is there anything else that you might not have and I was kind of like oh i don't you know i kind of i'm pretty good like i don't really ask for more than i need and i have enough to what but i'm doing but you had
0: with. a shameful secret
1: <laughs> and i had never told anyone i can't really hold my breath that long interesting and which seems like uh, you know, everyone says it. They're like, Well what like well, how what How do, do you, you do? do it, right? Yeah. I mean, and my yeah. answer to that was always I just hold it as long as I have to. Right. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I mean, trying I'm to not, hold it any longer I'm than, not
0: dead right now, so obviously I hold it as long as I need to hold it to stay alive.
1: Exactly. And right. that but I had this underlying thing, like I can't hold it that long just sitting on the couch. Like that's kind of scary as a surfer and Another thing is going deep. I had cleared my ears one time cuz one of them wouldn't clear when I landed a plane, I think in like in Europe or somewhere and when I was w- walking off the plane, I was trying to pop my ear and when I did it, I just went lights out for I don't I later learned that it might have been from dehydration or just from excessive travel and mm-hmm. everything and then when I cleared it, it just kind of turned off and I woke up and there was like 10 people around me on the aisle of an airplane and I had hit my head on the little armrest. So I oh. always had this like little underlying fear, like if I'm at 25 feet down and I go to clear my ears, am I just going to fall asleep again? Interesting. And that would be a really bad place to fall asleep. Not the best place. Yeah. yeah. So that, I kind of had that going on a little bit. And then they, I read a, in a in-flight magazine about this guy that was, training david blaine to do his world record attempts and all his magic shows that and he's really putting in like seven minute breath holds and in the same article the guy's wife is like a world champion free diver and he tiger woods is super into it and it's helping tiger like breathe and practice and calm down before his like
0: championship putts that's I mean that's the interesting thing about breath hold training, right? Is that it's not really just for surfers at all. It's actually Anything. for anybody. It's yeah. it's right before you send that email that you're going to regret later. It's it's yeah. before a presentation. It's I mean that, right? It's, and it, that
1: that's exactly what it is. And I started to resonate with that as I was reading this like, whoa, this is way more than just about freediving or doing some crazy magic stunt in New York City in a bubble, you know, like right. This is like I I can't imagine if I, if, if these guys are using this, like imagine if surfers were doing this too. So I literally ripped out these magazine articles and I sent them to Dr. Andy Walsh. And then, you know, a lot of communication back and forth. And a year later, Kirk Kroc, who's the developer of performance freediving, he flew to Maui and we got right into it. And I went from being able to do a 45 second hold on a couch to, laying on the ground the first night before we even started any of the program just by changing my breathe-up prior to the hold through diaphragmatic breathing to doing a 3-minute and 30-second hold the first little go at it. And then after the evolution of training with them, now I can do a 5-minute static underwater in a pool and free dive 155 feet at depth. So that helps. Yeah, so that, and it also, (laughs) for me, I had this fear of drowning. The first time I did the program, I was like, I mean, everyone, like anyone, I don't want to drown. I don't want to die. I really like surfing. I like being alive. And my end goal is to come home every time after these swells. And part of it was I want to know what it feels like to go through that in a controlled environment. So I laid down in the pool and tried to push myself past the point of being in control and you so, lose motor control where does
0: this come from like where does this th- drive to want to push your limits specifically in water come from i don't know curiosity curiosity and is it also that that you were faced with so much uh, you know adversity with that hold down and at jaws i mean was it kind of this this part of I, it i can master this somehow if i just put in the right training i mean do you have that thought like i got this now you know, like I've, I can hold my breath for long. I, I know what it's like to be in the washing machine underwater. Um, I, I can, I, I'm, I can do this.
1: Yeah. I think it's not so much about like, I can do this because things can go really bad. If the board hits you in the head, you get knocked out, you're done. If the board, like I could be put in another situation where I get the wind knocked out of me and I don't have the air that I would like to have. But now I. I have a really, really intricate understanding of what my body is going through. I know that as soon as I start having contractions or convulsions because of a lack of oxygen, that I have a lot more time left in my tank. Whereas prior, I'm like, okay, that's the, that's the red siren going, like you're about to drown. And now I really understand what my body's going through when it's put in these extreme cases. And I have a much better understanding and a sense of calmness and comfort with that. Like, when you can slow your mind down, it can slow the rest of your body's panic down. And the only way to really slow your mind down is to understand what's going
0: on. Right, to rationalize it, yeah. right, to think, this waiting, is what's to think happening. your way through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've got a new film coming out distance between dreams uh which highlights what can only be described as an epic year at jaws which we'll just call your home break for <laughs> lack of a better for lack of a better term it's not really it's it's uh it's a rare wave isn't it um set it up for us a bit what what is what makes jaws so special jaws is a very unique wave in the fact that the ocean
1: floor outside of it the bathymetry creates these large...
0: This is off the north shore of Maui. Off the
1: north shore of Maui. And the swells that are generated from, like, the northeast part of Japan and almost drifting up towards the Aleutians in Alaska, those storms send so much energy. And the bathymetry, the ocean floor outside of Jaws, ramps this energy up. And as it approaches the lineup at Jaws, it seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Where a lot of waves, the ocean floor can take away from it, or the way an island is set up, the refraction can take away the size. So when the size comes, it gives this magnitude of just a massive wall of water, and then the bottom of the lineup itself at Jaws is almost built to handle these size of waves. The channel is set up, it has a right and a left to surf, and it's not just like what you'd stereotypically think of a big wave where it's just a massive drop and then you go straight. Jaws is set up like a performance small wave, but a 50 to 60-foot wave.
0: Which is insane.
1: It's really rare to have a wave that size for that long and it's barreling and running like it's pipeline or backdoor.
0: You could get, as you would say, pitted. You could get pitted. You could get pitted. Yeah. So you you could could, spend time in the green room. Yeah, and that's rare for a big wave
1: of that nature to have that. And when the waves get big, it jaw it just consistently does that. And I think the way that it's set up, some waves might only be, you know, thirty to forty feet. Jaws just seems to ramp everything up. And a thirty to forty foot swell at other places on other islands or other sides of Maui is like 50 to 60 feet at Jaws. So it gets
0: consistently a lot bigger than everywhere else that I've surfed. I, I, I was out on a boat um, when Jaws was breaking, and you were probably out there. Kyle Lenny was there, Maya Gabera. I was following her around, big wave uh, surfer who's, mm-hmm. who's a, a female um, and incredibly talented and good at it. But um, one thing that really struck me was how the land disappeared, um, when you're out on the boat, like uh, when you're in the trough of the wave, you couldn't see land anymore. And it's not like land was far off in the distance. Land was actually quite close, but you just, it just was gone. It was just a wall of blue. And then all of a sudden you it came Reveal. back into view again and you're like... My god, that was a wave. <laughs> like I was in the trough of a wave. I mean, it's Yeah, so that's the back of the wave
1: and it's so tall that, that when you turn when you're out in the lineup and you don't go on a wave and you turn around and the spray is flying over the back into your eyes, yeah. you're just looking at what looks like another wave but it's just moving forward away from you. And that, that reveal of the island is something that's super unique and we tried to capture that in the film. Right. Like that was a un- that vision that yes. you saw yeah. is something we spent a, a, a whole day. Yeah, we went outside the wave, and I wanted to sh- show the viewer what that reveal is that we see behind the wave. So you see the spray, yeah. and the wave drift away, and the island
0: come back into your sight. Jaws is really the focus in this film. Why was it important for you to capture it? Why was it important for you to? What, what did you want to tell people, people who have never been surfing before, never been to Hawaii before?
1: I think Jaws is a good chunk of the focus. We have a few other facets to what the film, the backbone of the film is. But what I was really trying to do with Jaws is I feel Jaws is the pinnacle of surfing big waves right now. You know, there might be other waves out there in the world, and I have like an undying desire to go and explore and try to find them. But right now, this is this is it. This is there's nothing bigger. There's nothing badder. It's as scary as it can get, and it provides a wave that you can perform to the highest potential and push yourself further than you ever will ever want to go.
0: Right. So <laughs> that's that, a nice like, way of putting it. Yeah. There,
1: there's every time you go out there, there's more to be done, and that's why. You know, there's a lot of waves that come in and go completely unridden. That, you know, that that I don't even want a piece of. And the fact that there's still those types of
0: waves coming in consistently there, that's a pretty good setup. We should also say that last year was a record year. It was an El El Nino winter, right? Yeah, last
1: year was without a doubt probably the best big wave season I've seen in my lifetime. And you are
0: how old? I'm 33. That's that's at least three. Three decades. That's, yes, a, that's, and not that's like, a lot. That's a long time. That's at
1: least 20 years for sure of right. like consistently watching every day that breaks yeah, on amazing. Maui in winter. So, and the reason for that is we had so many really big swells that came with really rare light winds. Yeah. So those two things never happened together. And that's what even gave us like a small ample of a small little tiny window of opportunity to try and paddle into these waves right with the right. wind that kind of takes it away because you get a lot of lift it's harder to position and the fact that the wind stayed just light enough
0: for us to attempt a couple of the days made it really really interesting so uh, surfers flock from all over the world when when jaws breaks the way it did um uh, you've got, you know, people calling you up all the time, uh, people flying in, old friends from Brazil, from Australia, from California coast, that sort of thing. Um, what I found really interesting is how much responsibility you feel for the safety of yeah. the people out there. Um, when it's really kind of a place that that's, you know, if you're not out there, you shouldn't be out there. Basically, if you're not out there prepared, you shouldn't be out there in the first place. Um but where where does that come from for you this this sense of responsibility um
1: that is a really good point cuz without the safety aspect to the lineup that's happening there's a handful of guys that have devoted their lives into you know being there on the biggest days and putting themselves in risk to get us out of really bad situations without them our sport the progression of big waves doesn't happen like there's no there's no one without the other and it's a really key component to what we are doing. And I think a few of us started to see that in the beginning, like in the beginning phases, you know, you, you, you need that. Like, like, like I said earlier, at the end of the day, the goal isn't to ride the biggest wave. It's not to like try to outdo one. The goal is like everyone comes home at the end of the day. Cause it is real. Like there's real risk. And, like, that's ultimately what's a bad day. Like, a bad day is not missing a wave or maybe you don't even get one, you break your board or you get hurt a little bit. Like, a bad day is someone dies. So how can we, like, figure out a way that eliminates that to the best of our ability? Like, you're never going to eliminate it entirely, but how can we control this a little bit more? And it just kind of naturally evolved in doing this rotation with my brothers. So we bring jet skis out. And if, you know, one or two of us are paddling in the other two are sitting on the jet skis watching those two. So if something bad happens, they have a jet ski and they're ready to go into the lineup and if need be jump off and secure the body and
0: Yeah, and, and I mean significant peril to themselves. I should say, you know, jet skis are fast, that, but these waves move pretty yeah. damn fast themselves. The jet
1: skis are fast, the waves are moving really quickly, and sometimes it requires having the presence of mind to leave the jet ski right. and hold on to the body till someone else gets you so you don't lose the person in the impact zone. So that takes a certain type of person as well because they're going to be faced with the same waves the guy's surfing if that is the case which has been the case a few times and it's just like that's a for me it's it starts with like trying to again going back to like being a little kid try to lead by example like rather than like preach this to everyone that comes in that's visiting where we live and like tell them how it needs to be like let's like do it. Let's show by example, like this is our program. Like everyone can have this type of a program with a little bit of effort, a little time and, and energy. Right. And it, you know, and in another sense, it's like, yeah, we we feel lightly responsible, which is hard because there is a lot of guys that come surf and like, we, I don't want anyone to get hurt severely
0: out there at all. So it's, but is managing all that and managing that lineup and everything, is, is that a bit of a burden sometimes? As yeah,
1: well? the, the lineup manages itself, fortunately. The bigger it gets, that JAWS regulates itself and can thin out a lineup really quickly.
0: Right, it can take surfers over the falls. Yeah, can, right. the,
1: the lineup manages itself, and I, I just try to focus on our program and making whoever's with us as safe as possible. And if... Like if our everything's all good and something really drastic happens, we have the ability to kind of react and help and some luckily some form of the training to like help and, you know, at least neutralize a situation until we get that person to a higher echelon of care.
0: And when you say we, do you mean you and your brothers? Yeah,
1: myself, my brothers, a few of the other surfers are really, really adamant about this as well. And there's a handful of other guys that work with my brothers very closely in doing this as well. And then a lot of it, you know, it becomes a rotation of surfers. Like if I'm not surfing and say, you know, Greg Long is also a sur- legendary big wave surfer. Also leg- said. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And he's out surfing. Yeah. Then maybe I'm sitting on the jet ski, like taking a break, but I'm watching and I'm pretty much ready to move if something happens to him and vice versa. So if I go out and he's like taking a fiver, he's not just like sitting on the boat with a hat over his eyes, taking a nap. like He's sitting on a jet ski ready to react to what needs to happen if something really bad happens. Right, right. And the fortunate thing about that type of thing is the surfers (laughs) see the bad stuff happening almost before they happen. Right. They can see the position of a guy in a wave, the way he falls, they know the way he falls, they know the way someone screams when they surface. How bad be- is that? That's a scream like that's a broken femur. You know that you know that yell, like this is what needs to ha- get that stuff ready. I'm going in to get him. Like surfers can see that pretty quickly. The same way like if they walk up to the beach and see someone fall on a wave, they see it almost happening. Before the guy knows he's in a really
0: bad place. And the thing is, the interesting thing is that you can take, you know, this is like the, you know, this is like the most intense arena, let's say for big waves in the world at the moment. All the lessons that you learn in this arena, you can probably apply anywhere else in the world as well, right? Wherever you're surfing.
1: Yeah. And we're learning that too. Like, and we're learning as we're going. We're not like, Like there's Navy SEALs that have helped us and they have come and watched watched a whole day of what we do. And then they give us like a nice debrief of notes of how we could streamline this, how to clean up our radio comms, how to look at like different little things. And that's helped us so much. You know, we're like the first part of learning is like being quiet. And the second part is listening to these guys that know a lot more than you. So, like, we're not like, oh, we got it. We have this figured out. We're still evolving and learning as we go. But we do put in a lot of time and energy to doing this because we want, like, at the end of the day, like, we want to be able to push ourselves. This is our passion, our drive, and consumes our lives. Right. But we do, like, we want to come home and try to have it, like... It's an uncontrollable environment, but you try to have as a little bit of control if you can.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing for you is that you you feel that responsibility for everyone else, right? Yeah. As opposed I, to just being like, I need to get myself home today. No, you know? and I do feel that, especially... It's the big brother, man. Yeah, and that
1: goes back to maybe being like, I never really had put that together till now. You might be like a borderline psychiatrist. Yeah, but. <laughs> this
0: is a session. I don't charge though. Thank <laughs> so you. This whole thing is free.
1: But that could be it too. Is yeah. I feel
0: crap psychiatrists, uh, below average podcast. There is. we go. That's, that's that kind could of a, be the name of the podcast. I think that's going on my LinkedIn profile. Um, so so it's got that's interesting. So you've got that you've got that um, responsibility. You never you never see it as a burden though. You never see it well, as well. Sometimes kind of, I feel like.
1: It's a lot to think about, like rather than like rather than just thinking about my boards and my my equipment, my flotation vest, my you know nutrition the day before, how much water I'm drinking that like rather than thinking about just that and going to bed early, I have a lot more to think about. I'm thinking about okay, what boat is the a e d going on, where is the immediate response med kit going how many guys are going to be out there surfing with us and how many skis do we need to that where what happens if that ski driver goes down <laughs> having a contingency plan for every little scenario so that's a lot more to be think. that's not like yeah like a, a Novak Djokovic is not thinking about anything but his tennis racket, his shoes, and his nutrition. That's right. He's not, He's thinking, not about thinking about like, okay, security at the stadium. His opponent, if he like sprains his ankle, how is he going to get him out of the lineup in a heli basket? Right, You know. right, right, like there's, right. So sometimes I do wish, like, oh, man, it would be nice to just think about this. And part of what we've built, like my brothers and I and, and some of our friends at home there, is it's just kind of morphed into this program where everyone, like now a lot of guys know a lot more about it to where it's not just on a couple of our shoulders. Like everyone kind of understands the program. And last winter was so big by the end of the season, we had it like down to a science for what we need, the timing it takes to get everyone out to the lineup, get everyone in safe, get all the skis in, the boats out of the water without losing them into the waves that are breaking on the boat ramp. And you, it's just like, we're learning as we go. And I think having everyone open to like learning.
0: And do you, with all of this preparation, you know, you take this very seriously. Uh, You're training seriously, your nutrition seriously, um, the safety of people in the water, your equipment, um, progressing that equipment. Do you remember in all of this, to also just enjoy the surfing.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, at the, as soon as, like, all of that, that's why I like surfing so much. Like I said, I can have these 10,000 different balls I'm juggling in the air, and then as soon as I get in the water, all of that goes away. And that's part of, like, what surfing is for me, is, yeah, I can have all these thoughts about that, and I. that's the reason I surf in particular. Maybe big waves it might be that sense of intense focus or flow in those those rare moments but my everyday surfing is i just love surfing like i i i'll surf every day whether whether it was my career or not my career if i have the ability and the i can physically get in the surf i'm going to be doing this this isn't like the nfl when i retire i just like go coach a kids like football team and never yeah. get put the pads back on like Right. When I retire from professional surfing, I'll be surfing until I'm in a wheelchair with, you know or or I die, whatever comes first. like th- it's, that's, that's the difference I think in surfing is yeah. I, I truly do and a lot of surfers that I know feel the same way. like we truly love to do this. Like there's no yeah. other place that I'd rather be than surfing.
0: Well, let's hope it's uh, a wheelchair and not dying in the water. It certainly (laughs) sounds like you're going to Or or neither.
1: Maybe I'll just be able to walk right out, you know? (laughs) There you go. There
0: you go. Ian, thank you so much,
1: man. Easy. Thank you.
0: All right. Yikes. Yikes, Ian Walsh. I'm going to stick to the two to three foot waves uh, for now. Thank you very much. This has been the Red Bulletin podcast. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Acast as well. Uh, of course, you can also head over to redbulletin.com. In addition to an archive of this podcast, you can also get uh, some great stories, great words and images. I um, Hope you enjoyed it and see you next time.